Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Reset Podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Mignot, CEO of the Cultural Communications Agency, D-Flash. This is part of my really incredible series called 29 Days of Magic, where I interview a Black woman a day from all walks of life and have just a fantastic conversation. I am thrilled today to have April Rain, who's the founder and creator of the Oscar So White campaign, as well as the co-founder of She Will Rise. We're going to have a great conversation today about her career and what she's seen all the years, and it's going to be just fantastic. Ah, take a listen. Hey, April. Hello, Laura. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. How are you? Um, you know, I'm really good. You know, we're into February, and you know, I'm taking things in, in, a, in a good and abundant way going forward. Love it. So... Uh, the first question is always the same, and I'm always delighted by the answers. I'm sure you'll be no different. So, April, what was your first job? Oh, um, my first job, I think, was working at McDonald's um, when I was like 16 or something like that. And the uniforms back then were all polyester. There were no pockets. They, they were horrible. <laughs> and of course, you know, so you're covered with grease at the end of the day. It was not great. Oh, no pockets. What did you do? Well, I mean, you know, I guess they were worried about us stealing some nuggets, <laughs> you know, but I, I, I don't know. So you were just behind the counter and it was fine. I mean, you know, I know all women want pockets in every single clo- piece of clothing they have. <laughs> and, and I am no different. But back then it just seemed really odd. But I mean, the fact that the uniforms were head to toe polyester was a much bigger deal than the fact that there were no pockets. No, head to toe polyester while you're in that heat all day long just seems like my own personal version of hell. How long did you do that for? Oh, not long. Probably (laughs) just like a a summer or something. My parents um, were not big proponents of us working during the school year because they wanted us to concentrate on our studies. Um, So it was probably just three or four months. Oh, okay. Not too bad. Okay. So we go from being trapped in polyester in high school to where you are today. So tell us about that career journey. Well, um, (laughs) McDonald's wasn't going to be it for me. So (laughs) I completed high school, went on to college, went on to law school. Uh, My first job out of law school school was at a firm, Um, decided I did not like that. And I was not rainmaker material. And so it didn't make sense for me to stay because I knew I would never make partner. Um, oh. uh, not only not only because I don't like to rain make, but also because at that particular firm, the chances of a black woman making partner were very, very slim. Um, so I went to an agency instead. I was there for a long time. Uh, and then Oscar So White happened and I left that job and here we are. So for the folks that the for the three people who don't know what Oscar So White is, <laughs> can you can you just kind of go back and tell us why you started it and and, and how it's evolved today? Sure. Hello, three people. Um, <laughs> in January of 2015, as I mentioned, I was still a practicing attorney, and uh, I was a huge entertainment consumer, Broadway and and screen, big and small, um, and music. And so I was watching the Oscar nominations in my family room as I was getting dressed that morning. And and I was in the family room getting dressed because Chris Hemsworth, who plays Thor um, in the Marvel series, 
um, was one of the presenters and he was in a suit. And I said, listen, I need Thor in HD on the biggest screen in the house. So I was half dressed in April, the April, you and I have something in common. I mean, <laughs> and I'm sure like 3 billion other people, but yes, indeed. Um, and he was lovely. So he's reading the nominations and it just struck me that category after category, both in front of and behind the camera, there were no people of color nominated in any of the acting categories. And even when you talked about the behind the, cate behind the camera categories, uh, like cinematography and directing and so on, there were um, very few, if any, people of color nominated and very few, if any, women nominated in each category. Uh, and as your listeners will recall, 2015 meant, you know, the, the films from 2014. So we're talking about Beyond the Lights. We're talking about Selma. Um, so <laughs> there, there were fantastic like, come on. <laughs> films. Right. There were fantastic films that came out that year. Uh, and so Twitter is my social media platform of choice. And my cell phone is typically embedded in my phone, my forearm. So I just pick up my <laughs> phone and said, Oscar's so white, they asked to touch my hair. And as black women know, you just don't do that. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, at that time I was late for work. So I finished getting dressed, went on the work. I checked back in on Twitter around lunchtime and the hashtag based on that one tweet was now trending around the world. Wow. Incredible. And so it was, <laughs> you know, initially I was being snarky. And so the responses that we got in, in response to my tweet were equally snarky. You know, Oscar so white, they find mayonnaise too spicy. Oscar's so white, they wear Birkenstocks in the wintertime. You get it. It wasn't until a couple of days later that we transitioned the conversation from pettiness and sarcasm to one much more substantive about the lack of equity and representation, not just with respect to the Oscars, because they all have their issues, but throughout Hollywood and even now um, throughout the entertainment industry. So over the years, you know, we're going into, my goodness, year seven now, um, wow. other people have created other similar hashtags like Grammy so white and um, journalism so white and so on. And I think that's great because it continues the conversation about how important equity and representation are in every single industry, regardless of where you work. And, you know, that's the thing. And it's also, we've had this kind of weird <laughs> set of circumstances like in the summer of 2020 we had all of these pro all the protests and then all of a sudden everyone's reading all the books to try and you know learn how to be more equitable and now in 2022 we're banning books <laughs> and it's it's such a bizarre kind of pendulum swing that seems to be happening to us right now what do you think is what would you say is happening in the entertainment business since you started Oscar So White um, it's always two steps forward, one and a half steps back. So the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, the people who run the Oscars, made changes. They doubled the number of people of color and doubled the number of women within their membership ranks, which is good. But when you're going from, let's say, 8% to 16%, when the population <laughs> that is actually going <laughs> to see the movies is much, much more than that, 
it's really a drop in the bucket. Um, and, you know, and we've seen other uh, other organizations in other industries also make changes. You know, the Grammys said that they're going to do better. Um, recently, we found out that the Golden Globes, you know, which is the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, didn't have any black members at all, and you know, and they were accepting, let's just say, gifts and luxurious items um, from. Uh, studios that were up for nomination. So that didn't look good. So I, I think that what gives me the most hope is that actors and actresses and other filmmakers are no longer waiting for their seat at the table. Um, you know, Shirley Chisholm famously said, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair, uh, which yeah. I absolutely love. But I think what we're seeing now is that folks are creating their own production companies. So not only are they no longer waiting for a seat at the table, they're creating their own mansion to put their own table in it. And that's um, really inspiring, I think. So John Boyega and of course, Viola Davis and Will Smith and others are saying they are going to create the art that they want to see on film. And I don't know that we saw that type of surge um, in interest in that way, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, it's definitely been... Uh... Well, I would say in the last five years or so, but we've definitely started to see this change. I mean, with Issa Rae and now with Quinta Brunson and Robin Feedy, you know, we definitely are seeing that like folks are like, you know what, I'll just make my own stuff. Um, and it'll be fantastic. Like, I love Abbott Elementary. It's my new favorite show. Um, and it's great to see that, like, who the showrunner is and the executive producers are. And they're building TV that is for, quote unquote, everybody. Uh, and that is a drastic change that we had we hadn't seen before. Absolutely, and I think what's interesting, especially uh, in the last five to seven years, is that consumers, you and me, who sit on our couches and watch TV or you know stream film, um, are much more savvy than we used to be. So we want to know who the costume designer is. We want to know who's working cinematography and doing the amazing lighting, for example, on Insecure. So even in the darkest rooms, we can still see our black bodies. Uh, and, And so I think that because consumers are clamoring for more representation behind the camera, in addition to the actors and actresses we see in front, that's what's really making the change because for the movie industry, for the TV industry, as is the case for all other industries, money is the bottom line. And because we all have been home for these last couple of years, um, you know, the streaming services are able to determine who is watching their offerings in a way that they never have before. Because if you think about it, if you go to a Cineplex, right, pre COVID, um, you're going to a movie theater, you're giving them your $15 or however much it costs, they give you a ticket and you go sit in a darkened room. Well, they have no idea who you are. But when you sign up for Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime Mm -hmm. or any of the other ones, they know your demographic. And so they can say, oh, women are really interested in this. Let's make 10 more of these. Or, you know, Black folks are really getting down with this. So let's do more of that. And so I think that's why we're seeing the shift and so many more um, shows and films that are uh, reflecting aspects of experiences of people of color. Still not enough, but better than where we were. 
Yeah, it's definitely better. And I think it's also because like we have this sort of really interesting time with at least with TV and the streaming services, as you say. Like we have this like kind of almost golden age of TV. Because I can't remember a time when like I have this much really good choice, no matter what I'm into, that's you know, being run by people of color, um, behind the cameras as well as in front of the cameras. And and it's stuff that I can talk to like my white friends about where like, oh yeah, I'm watching that too, which is, which is, I think is the biggest shift where it's coming around where it's like, oh, by the way, you guys are watching it too. Great. Um, and that, and I would even say like five, six years ago, that wasn't the case. Like there was a stuff that like, you know, we watch and the stuff that like my white friends watch and there'd be like network crossover if it was like something like scandal or something or how to get away with murder. Absolutely. I, I you know, I think it, it's, it's all about story. It's truly all about story. So if a story is being told well by good actors and good writing, then everybody's going to be interested. You know, I think about Empire in the only in the early days. It was a ratings juggernaut. Well, you mm-hmm. know, Black people are all things to everyone, but it wasn't just us, <laughs> right? We weren't, right. I didn't know anybody that owned a Nielsen box. So it wasn't just us watching Empire because it was a good story told well. Um, and, and if you're looking for universal stories, you know, they are possible for you to see them out there. You One just has to broaden their frame of reference. And so you want to talk about a rom-com? Absolutely. Everybody loves rom-coms, but why haven't we had more rom-coms where the two leads are queer people, right? That That's exactly. important. And the story is the same, you know, X falls for Y and then there's some kind of drama and they break up and at the very end they get back together. Well, you know, lesbians can do that. <laughs> you know, gay so, men can do that. Exactly. Is, Non-binary people can do that. Thing. Right. Just as easily as hetero folks can do that. And so there's no reason why we can't be more open-minded and most importantly, the, the green lighters, the people who are in control of which shows will make it to market, um, can't be more open-minded as well. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously your life changed from that one tweet. <laughs> uh, what, what are you working on to these days? What I'm most interested right now in is um, She Will Rise. So that's sisterscotus.org. Uh, we are our mission is to support President Biden in his promise to nominate a Black woman to the Supreme Court and then to actually get her through the confirmation process because it's one thing to be nominated, um, but as Mary Garland and others can tell you, right, it's another thing to be confirmed. Um, And we know that there are um, countless Black women, lawyers, judges, and otherwise who are eminently qualified to sit on the bench. And this will be the first time. I mean, the Supreme Court is over 200 years old. We've had approximately 114 Supreme Court justices. And I think 108 of them have been white men chosen by white presidents. Um, And so the Supreme Court in our mind should represent the demographic that they are making law and enforcing law for. Right. So if we're talking about three over 300 million people, we know that this country is becoming browner every year. But our concerns regarding, let's say, maternal health and environmental justice and civil rights, there's no one on the court who can speak to the lived experience of black women. And so that's why we think this is so very important. 
Oh, amazing. I'm so glad to hear this. Yeah, because I, I, I am excited, but also terrified of the foolishness that she's going to have to go through to get confirmed. But I'm also kind of like, we've been new because I mean, I've been a Black woman all my life. And so I know what the world looks like. And the foolishness that we've had to put up with for folks who think that we're somehow not qualified. And I mean, that's the thing that's been bugging me about like, oh, they're so upset. How is an affirmative action pick? I'm like, so you were totally cool with every white dude who got there who clearly wasn't qualified. And do you somehow think that, you know, President Biden is gonna pick someone who's not ridiculously qualified and an amazing jurist um, has qualifications for days and probably is more qualified than ones who are probably sitting on the bench right now. Like, what's wrong with you folks? Well, I think that's exactly right. You know, what we know, the statistics, the research shows that the um, white women benefit from affirmative action more than any other demographic in this country. Uh, and yet when Amy Coney Barrett, who is not qualified to sit on the Supreme Court, was nominated, no one was talking about affirmative action then. Um, mm. But we've heard that scream um, from the right, from conservatives several times now with respect to an unnamed, <laughs> we don't even know unnamed. who this woman is Literally yet, unnamed. <laughs> an unnamed nominee for, from President Biden. And so if it's not gender, then what is it? Well, we know the answer. And why is that? Because as you say, we have to be twice as good to get half as far. I'm sure all of your listeners have heard that from their parents at one time or another. Uh, and, and so our purpose with She Will Rise is to support the nominee as she's going through this process because we know it's going to be difficult regardless of how qualified she is. She will be looked upon as lesser than um, which makes no sense. And in the past, we have seen other presidents specifically say, I want to nominate a Catholic person to be on the Supreme Court. I want to nominate exactly. an, an Irish person. Like they were very specific and no one batted an eye. But here we are now, um, you know, with Black people being the, the large percentage that they are of this population without representation on the court because all due respect to Justice Thomas, he is not reflecting the interests of most African-Americans in this country. Oh, exactly. And also who is the largest voting bloc for Democrats? Like, let's be well, real That's the this. other thing, that, oh, right. And, and, you know, and so, and so it, there's also a loyalty piece there because black women show up and show out every single time and did so for President Biden. And so not only is this necessary because it should be so, but also because it's, it's a promise kept um, from the campaign uh, that was jumpstarted truly by uh, Representative Clyburn, uh, you know, right. in South Carolina because Biden initially was on the ropes. Yeah, I mean, Representative Clyburn basically saved him in South Carolina. And like when he gave that endorsement, like the whole, the whole campaign changed. And as a result That's of right. that, we now have President Biden and Vice President Harris. Um, it, you know, I'm, like I said, I, I, I can't wait to see the amazing woman that he picks. I, I, know, I know that she'll be ready for this absurd absurdity that she's going to have to go through. I wish she didn't have to go through it, is my, is my, is my, is my most ardent wish. Because it's like, you've got to be kidding me. Um, but we have this very peculiar set of circumstances that we're in right now where 
it's as if we're the, we're regressing and you're again banning books about black about Toni Morrison and like uh it's like are you serious so you know and throughout history it's always been there's always been this weird like pendulum swinging backwards whenever we have a lot of advancement and progress and so we just have to make sure that we keep pushing the pendulum forward and don't want to swing backwards at this particular moment especially absolutely and and it's not just um the eventual nominee it's also her family you know they because oh, the media and everyone else will dig deeply you know and so you know everybody's got that cousin that doesn't get invited to the cookout anymore because they did something that you know that was outside right. of you know um decency or the norm or what have you um and and you again you look at justice kavanaugh you know and some of the issues that he had during the confirmation um and and he was not scrutinized in the ways that i think um he should have been because of some of the allegations against him so you know we are here to support president biden and his nominee um, we will be pressing hard on the senate to confirm the nominee just as quickly as they did Amy Coney Barrett, despite her lack of qualifications. Um, and so if folks want to, uh, you know, get involved, do more, they can go to SISTA-SCOTUS, S-I-S-T-A-S-C-O-T-U-S, for Supreme Court of the United States.org. Um, we have a petition there that folks can sign uh, that will say to the president and to the Senate, yes, it is time for Supreme Court justice. We promise not to spam you. There's also a, a judicial tracker on there so that you can see the Black women who are coming through the pipeline because I think there are about six to eight Black women whose nominations are just sort of sitting there waiting to be confirmed. And to his credit, President Biden has nominated more Black women to the bench than any other president, including Obama, in history. Oh, awesome. Uh, yeah, we'll absolutely share that, all that in the show notes because folks need to see this and I want to see this judicial tracker and see what's going on with these folks uh, as well. So, you know, thinking back on what you've been able to do over the years, what do you think you'd tell 25 year old April? Oh, um, 25. Okay, 25 was right out of law school. Oh, um, I, I think I would say being more judicious in your professional choices. Um, you know, I think that at least in my generation, I'm 51, uh, you know, when we were coming out of high school and chose to go to college, if you wanted to be a quote unquote professional, that meant you were either a doctor, a lawyer, um, an engineer or an accountant. Like those are the four choices. <laughs> and that was yes. it. Uh, I, you know, I didn't like, I, I was not going to do anything with bodily fluids. I was not big on numbers and engineers sounded sort of scary. And so lawyer it was. Uh, and I think that people now have so many more choices uh, in creating the career and the life that they want to lead. Uh, and so I, th I, I think we were also told you know, take the first job you get and then stay there forever because you never mm -hmm. know and it's good job security and, you know, you're making decent money and all the rest of that. But there was never a question about happiness. <laughs> you know, right. is this like, job Are you really fulfilling? happy doing this job or it's right. killing your soul? Is this job fulfilling? You know, can you see yourself being happy doing this job? And I really think that those are questions, especially 25-year-old people, 
should ask themselves, you know, is this something you want to do forever? And if not, what's your exit plan? You know, what are you doing? Not just so that one day you get so overwhelmed that you just quit with no safety net. What are you doing to ensure that you can quit and go on to something bigger and better and, and more fulfilling, hopefully financially as well as personally? So I think I would say be more judicious in your choices and, and be more thoughtful. No, I think that's great advice, um, especially now because you have, it's almost like you have option overload. And so it's, it's really about taking the time to think about what do you want to do right now? Could you do this now? Could you do this for another 10 years, another five years? Uh, and figuring out, figuring that stuff out along the way, but making smart choices is the key for all of that. Agreed. And I think it, what I love about millennials and Gen Z is that they don't seem to have, at least compared to Generation X, my generation, they don't seem to have the, um, the loyalty to their employer and, I, and in the best possible way. So if in 18 months they say, you know what, this isn't for me, I, you know, I tried it, I don't like it, I'm going to do something else, they just leave. And I think that's great, <laughs> you know, because yeah. it's not a freedom that I felt like I experienced a long time ago. It was, you know, you've got a good job, you know, don't Stay rock there. the boat, just put, yeah, put your head down and do the work and pay your mortgage and have your kids and, and all the rest of that. And so I love the fact that um, younger folks are being more intentional in their choices and choosing the, the way I live now is to choose joy every single day. I am chasing joy. I am living with abundance and anything that doesn't serve that doesn't stay. Oh, I love that. Um, same here. I'm, I'm absolutely chasing joy now. It's like, if this isn't fun, why am I doing it? Well, what's the point? Okay. Um, so, you know, obviously you're probably super busy. Um, and you're bi-coastal at the moment. What in the world do you do for your self-care? It's always a really tough question um, because I think self-care looks differently to different people. Um, you know, so sometimes self-care for me means carving out time and putting it on my calendar so it is as important as any other appointment during the day to read for leisure. You know, I may take a full hour and just read and I have to put it on the calendar or it's not going to happen. Um, but I love that. Uh, I also love, love, love to travel. And it's harder now that we're in the middle of this pandemic, um, but I still make time for it. And, you know, I, to be honest, I feel more comfortable traveling outside of the country than I do within the country. So, you know, if I'm in DC and I decide I want to go to New Orleans or for a weekend, I can just jump on a plane. Okay, great. But Louisiana's numbers <laughs> with respect to COVID aren't fantastic right now. But if I decide I want to go to Bermuda, I've got to have a test before I get on the plane. I'm tested in the airport. I, once I'm there for three or four days, I'm tested again. And so I, I feel a little more comfort um, about the people who are around me. You know, I'm doing everything I can to stay safe, completely vaccinated and boosted and all the rest of that stuff. But it's everybody else sitting next to me um, on the flight or on the, you know, whatever public transportation, public transportation I'm choosing um, that I'm more concerned about. So travel for me is self-care and, and still living, um, chasing joy. That's part of my self-care, getting up every day, looking at my calendar and saying, okay, am I going to tackle all of these things today? And if not, 
if I don't feel like doing something, can I push it for a day? Because maybe I'll feel better about it tomorrow. Am I, you know, am I sitting on the fence about something? If not, let's go ahead and make a decision. All of those things are me practicing self-care to ensure that I am staying aligned with my purpose. Awesome. And so true. Like you've got to find one, schedule it, two, get out of here. Like I'm a big proponent of getting away. <laughs> like, so I'm right there with you. And again, if it doesn't serve me, I'm not doing it anymore. I think, you know, we didn't survive a pandemic to go back to our old ways of doing things. Uh, and so we've got to put ourselves first, make sure we focus on our rest and do what, and do what, th- and do what makes us happy. That's right. Exactly. And so last question for you, do you have a give and or an ask of the audience? I would love the audience to go to sisterscotus.org and sign the petition. It takes about 34 seconds um, and it will just say to both President Biden and to the Senate that it is time for a black woman as a Supreme Court justice. Um, you can follow the, the She Will Rise hashtag on all the social media platforms to get more information. There are lists out there of um, qualified individuals. Uh, and there's obviously a plethora of information at the sisterscotus.org website. So please sign the petition. Absolutely. As soon as I can get off, I will be doing exactly that. Uh, April, you are just so wonderful. And thank you so much for all the incredible work you do. I love what you're doing with She Will Rise and I'll help amplify as much as I possibly can. It's necessary and needed. And thank you so much for being part of 29 Days of Magic. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. Awesome. And we'll put all the details in the show notes. You can follow, sign a petition, follow April on all the social medias. Uh, and let's make sure that we have a really amazing Black woman on the Supreme Court who doesn't have to like go through every like scary, terrible thing that we're, we're anticipating. Fingers crossed for us all. Uh, and that is our show. <laughs>